0: So this week's Parsha is Parsha's Nayach. At the beginning of the Parsha, Hakarish Hu commands Nayach to build himself an ark. Ase l'cha teva satse Make for yourself a teva. A teva doesn't really mean a ship. A teva is more like a box. Make for yourself a big box made of geifer wood. And Rashi says, Harbe rebach There were many different Options for Hakadosh Baruch to save Nayak through it didn't have to be that Nayak had to build this big uh, teva for 120 years. He could have built him uh, an underground bunker. There could have been a I don't know some sort of uh, hot air balloon that would have lifted him off the ground. Why did Hakadosh Baruch have to be mitzave? Have to command Nayak to build this teva for 120 years to Schwitz and to build and to bang wood. Why is he doing this? And Rashi says ba so that the people of the daramabo the people that lived in that terrible generation would see Nayach working so diligently for 120 years the I say, and they would ask him maza why are you doing this what is your goal over here what's your point what are you building this big box for and he would then reply to them, Asida Krishparchu, Lahavi Mabol Ilam Ula Yeshuva. is going to bring a Mabol, a flood, onto this world. And the hope was that perhaps they would do Tshuva. Now, the difficulty that I had with this Rashi, and I really have two difficulties, but let's start with one is at the end of the day, Saif kol Saif, no one did tshuva. Nobody did tshuva. So, again, it seems like that it was a whole bracha over here. Nayach was busy for 120 years building this teva in the hopes that people would do tshuva. But Lomais, nice, nobody did tshuva. HaKadosh probably knew that nobody would do tshuva, and yet he made Nayach build this teva for 120 years and again, the question beckons like why why is it that Hakarish Hu would command Nayach to build this teva for 120 years and to give this constant musashmuz about doing tshuva, if at the end of the day nobody was going to buy into what Nayak was saying? Nobody listened. So again, let him do something simpler, let him do something easier and he could give his Musar Shmuz for five years or for 10 years. But why did he have to do this for so long and build this table for 120 years when there could have been other options? Uh, and at the end of the day, nobody listened anyway. So what do you have to knock yourself out for? And I think that the answer to that question might be that there's a very famous Vart from Rabbi Sol Salanter. Rabbi Salanter, who was the father of the Musr movement, used to say, the Falong that a person should always give a drasha. It's very important for people to teach and to give classes and to give muster and for Rabbanim to give drashas. and you'd say, you'd say to yourself, well, what's the point? You know, if you're a, a pulpit rabbi, unfortunately, very often, if you look around the room when a rabbi is giving a drusha, or even when a rabbi is sometimes giving a, a shir, what do you see when you look around the room? Well, you see a lot of times a lot of people sleeping. You see a lot of people sleeping. In fact, I, once had a, I was once in a shul, and the rabbi was going up to give his drusha and there was a, a guy in front of me, sitting in front of me, who was quite a, a little bit of a, of a let and he said to me, turns around to me, and he says, "Nap time." And the rabbi heard it, by the way, and uh, he wasn't too happy, but he gave him a really dirty look. But that's basically what it is. The drasha is a time for giving a nap. So unless the rabbi is like in a different world, he probably looks around the shul and says, "Why do I have to knock myself out? Why do I have to, you know, give this drasha for? I prepared for it, and I..." I you know, thought of it and I have my armakimes for it and, you know, I really worked so hard on it and for what? For whom? Nobody's listening. Nobody's listening. So Biswell Salant used to say that it's Kedai to give a drasha. It's worthwhile to give a drasha, or to give a shear or to give a schmooz, even if there's only one person that gains from it. You could have a hundred people in the room and all of them are sleeping. But if there's one person that's actually getting something from it, it's worthwhile. And then he added, and this is the punchline, even if that one person is you, if for no other reason than the rabbi or the Rebbe or the Rav or the, the Balabayas giving a she'er for himself, that he himself will be inspired, or he himself will have prepared for it and learned in that time that he was preparing. Or somehow gotten some, some results from it. He did a little tshuva himself. He bettered himself himself. It's kedai said Rabbi Soleslan do just for that. Even if the whole world is sleeping through your drushes and is not makabel, nobody is listening. Nobody's doing tshuva from it, but you are. It's worth it. And I was thinking that maybe that was the point over here. Nayach was a tzaddik, and you can't take that away from him. If the Torah itself writes at the beginning of the parsha, Nayach is tzaddik, that's pretty good. I'd I'd be pretty happy if I was Nayach, and the Torah has made on me that I'm a tzaddik. I'd be pretty happy. But if you look in the Rashis and you read the fine print, it seems that Nayach was a tzaddik, but he was a relative tzaddik. If you live in the Dar of Avram, according to some some of the Chachamim, he wouldn't have been anything. Nayach was somehow blamed for the entire Mabel on a certain level. In the Haftar of this week, we call it May Nayach. It was the floods of Nayach. Nayach was assigned blame for the mabul because he didn't influence the people of Izdar. Anyway, Nayach was somebody that was a tzaddik, but that needed personal tshuva. He needed some personal tinkering and certain, like we all do. We all need to, to work on ourselves. Nobody's perfect. So perhaps HaKadosh was being mitzvah nayach. You build a teva for 120 years. And you're going to give a musr shmuz for 120 years. You're going to say the mabul is coming to the world and you got to repent, you got to do tshuva now. And not a single person might listen to you, but you'll listen to yourself. And when you're giving that musr and when you're being ma'er people to do tshuva, it's going to have a reshom on you yourself. You yourself will be very inspired by that. The fact that you're banging in nails into this, uh, this box for 120 years and you're telling people about the flood and you're telling people about the sinning that's occurring in the dar and you're, you're riling yourself up in the process, that's very valuable. That's not a waste of time. That's not a brachal of Atala. If you're the only person that's makabal the Musar, then that's perfect. That's Kedai, just for that. And maybe that's what the Pasuk means when it says, Ase teva Make for yourself a Teva. Forget about the world. The world will be what the world is. And the world, if they want to listen, and they want to join you on your Teva, that's great. But ultimately, don't worry about the world. I say, teva For the teva is going to be, if no one else, it'll be for you. And if you build the teva for 120 years, and for those years you're able to completely understand, and be inspired, and be moved, and be nisayra to do tshuva in preparation of the mabul and in preparation of building the new world after the mabul, it's worthwhile. And this is a very, very big yesite in Avedis Hashem that a lot of times in life you're going to be asked to do certain things and you're going to not want to do it because it's too much of an undertaking. It's a very big commitment. But a lot of times by doing it, by saying, I will do it, you'd be shocked to realize how if no one else gains from it, you will. And even if you feel that you yourself might not be worthy of giving a she'er, or you're not exactly uh, you know, capable of giving every day a dafyaimi, or giving a drasha when you're asked to give a drasha, or being a balkyri if you have that skill and you're asked to be a balkyri, or you're asked to learn mishnayis, Uh, you know, for a Shleishim, And he said, no, me on the amount, I can't do it, and it's too much pressure on me, and I don't want to undertake it. And we all have that, hergish. It's all, it's a very human, natural thing. We don't want to. Who knows? Seven, seven and a half years, I'm going to give every day a dafyaymi shir. Impossible. It's not going to, it's not going to happen. I can't do it. You're asking me to give a shir once a week in Gemara, in this community that I moved to. I can't do it. It's not for me. And ask somebody else. When you say, I will, then you'd be shocked to realize that you're the one that's going to shteig the most. Even if everyone else, even if you have very few people that are coming to the shear, but if you yourself are obligating yourself, you're being of yourself to give a shear. that means you're going to prepare, or it means you're going to think about it, you're going to be creative, and you're going to spend a lot of time looking in svarim, or if you give a daffymi every single night you're going to be you know staying up into the wee hours of the night preparing for it, it's an undertaking absolutely, but it's going to be something that's good for you if no one else listens i once had a I once spoke to a very verykam and he said that when he became a rabbi, he was asked to uh give a shear to women, and one of the duties of as a as a rabbi The women, you know, claimed that they wanted a shear from the Rav. So he said, the first week that I gave the shear, there was about 30 women that came. It was a weekly shear, one night a week. 30 women showed up. He says, the next week, there were 25 women that showed up. And the third week, there was 15 women. (coughs) By By the sixth week, there was only seven women, he says, by the tenth week, I had to stop the shear because it was a shaila of yichud. So the shaila of yichud, there were so few women that were coming that I don't know if I was allowed to give the shear anymore. That happens sometimes, and we're worried. Hey, if I give a shear and no one comes to it, you know what's going to be? It's kedai then, even then, to give a shear. It's kedai to be of yourself to give a shear even then, because first of all, a lot of times it will be popular and it will grow and it will be beyond your wildest expectations. But even if it's not. Make it for yourself. Do it for yourself. Obligate yourself. And when you obligate yourself, then tremendous things come about from that. It's interesting. There's a story that's told. It's a very hard story to understand, but the great Rav Shlomo Freifeld uh, was the Rashiva of Sharyashev And he was looking for a janitor. So he put an ad in a paper and there was like some, uh, an older guy that shows up for, you know, to uh, to, to, to potentially be hired for this position. And Rabbi Shlame Freifeld starts schmoozing with him and it turns out that this was a guy who's a Yid and he, you know, he was a Holocaust survivor and before the war, he was a, um, you know, he learned in the finest yeshivas in Europe, and then after the war, some things happened, and he basically went off the derech, and now he had a ponytail, and he had, uh, you know, I don't know, all types So he didn't look like a, he didn't look like a Tammukachem at all, but Rabshaima Freifold felt that there was something to him, you know, more than just, uh, he was overqualified to be a janitor. So what he did was that he basically said to this guy, he said, he says, do you know, remember anything about learning? He says, yeah, you know, I haven't learned in about 30 years, but uh, I probably, you know, remember a thing or two. He says, because we don't really need a janitor right now. You know, we, we filled that position, but uh, we could use a rabbi in the yeshiva. So the a rabbi? He says, yeah, there's a few boys that are a little schwach. They need a little bit of extra help with, uh, you know, making a laning on the Gemara. And, uh, would you be able to maybe prepare them for that? He says, me be a Rebbe. He says, I haven't opened the Gemara in 30 years. He says, yeah, but you went to this yeshiva. You went to that yeshiva in Europe. You learned by big rashivas. You're, you're definitely able to, right? He says, uh, he says, well, look at me. He says, all right, whatever. That's not important right now. You, you'll, you'll, you'll start tomorrow. You'll be giving a share to a group of three boys. And he basically, uh, he came in, you know, and he gave a shear. And he really, the boys really enjoyed it. And he really enjoyed it. He wasn't Shamashabis Shabbos even at this point. And he goes over to Efreifel. He says, you know, I really enjoyed it. But like, it's, it doesn't pass that I should, I should have a ponytail giving a shear. It's not, it's not appropriate. He says, all right, so if you want, you cut your ponytail off. So he went to the barber. He cut his ponytail off. And then he says, but the next day he comes back after the next year, he says, but, you know, what about, uh, he says, I'm not Shem Shabbos. He says, nope, so maybe be Shem Shabbos. He says, okay, so he started being Shem Shabbos. He says, but I don't wear tefillin. He started putting on tefillin. And, and before you know it, he became like a regular, a regular Rebbe, you know, a regular Chashevet HaMachachem is Why? Because he started, because Rav Shem Freifeld was brilliant enough to chop that if you give a person a Shabbos, if you say to a person, I'm giving you a mission, be macabre on yourself to give a shear, to give over Tyra, then you automatically feel like I can't do certain things. I, I, maybe I used to go to the movies and maybe I used to go, uh, you know, and listen to Gaia music, but now I'm, I'm giving a share, you know, on Shabbos. I mean, it doesn't, it's not appropriate anymore for me to do this and that. And it changes your life, and it changes the, the family that you're, that you're bringing up. And it's, it's a tremendously uh, life-building endeavor when you obligate yourself, like Rabbi Shalantur says, you give a drush, and it, it, even if it's just to you, you don't know how that builds a person how that changes a person. So Nayak was giving a muster for 120 years for who? For nobody but one person, for himself. And for that alone, I say teva if You're making yourself a teva This is something Rabbi said that today it might seem very uh, academic. It doesn't seem like it's negate to you at all because you're bachem and yeshiva, and you know, other than giving a chabura, which is also a very important thing which we've spoken about in the past, you know, you don't have that many opportunities necessarily to give over from your Taira. But you know, something in a few short years. You'll be married and you might be moving to some out of town communities or wherever it is that you're found in the world. And there will inevitably be a need to do something. It might be uh, to give a Dafyaimi shear, or to give a Mishnah shear, or to give a women's shear, or to give a Perkayavah uh, shear, or to be a Balkeire, or to be a Gabai or to be. And you say, I, it's too much pressure on me. Why? Well, I just want to be a nobody. But it's kedai to be of yourself, to obligate yourself, and to to step to the plate, and you'll see that yourself, you yourself, will be the greatest beneficiary of this. It will happen 10 out of 10 times. You will never regret being of yourself, obligating yourself to give over things to the Rabbim or to do something for the tzibur, and you will be the one that gains the most from it. Just as an aside, um, you know the probably the largest shear in the country, maybe the world, is Rabbi Reisman's shear that he gives on Matzah Shabbos in Brooklyn during the winter. He gives a very famous Navi shear. I think they've been through all of Navi possibly, and. Um, and he gives, you know, he's obviously very skilled. That uh, he's a huge talmud chacham, and he's brilliant. And he gives, uh, you know, there are thousands of people that show up to this shul, at least, you know, pre-corona. You know, the Ezra's Nashim is full, and the basement is full, and the shul itself is full. Big Svardi shul that he gives it in, in every every single Matzah Shabbos. And how did this shear start? The shear started because there was some tervedas, I think. Which was a yeshiva that he was a Rebbe in. they were he was a kaiol guy and they needed somebody to when the when the boys came say Shabbos for a mishmar, you know, high school boys were coming, their parents were driving them every Matzai Shabbos to learn in the base medrash, so the fathers basically had nothing to do but to sit in the car and wait for their sons until the mishmar was over. So uh, somebody in that hall said, you know, it's such a waste of time. Like, why don't somebody? Why doesn't somebody give a shear? to the fathers of these boys and uh you know while and, and that way it won't be a bitals man for a hundred fathers or whatever a few dozen fathers. So they asked Rabbi Raiz mean he's uh you know a, a Kail younger man, a, an Avrich in the Kailal, would you be able to give a Sheer and you know, what what should I give it? And anyway in the end he said, I'll give it a Navi. Very few people learn Navi and uh and so the Shear started with ten people or a few a few dozen people. And then, before you knew it, it became so popular that they moved out of that uh, that base madrash and they got into a bigger base medrash and then into a bigger base medrash. And then it became a world famous shir. the The CDs of these shirim are all over the world, and they have uh, live teleconferencing of this shir in every single major community. People go and they listen, they watch it on you know on a cable hookup. All because he said that. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. He didn't know where it was going to go. He didn't know if it was going to die, you know, after the first week. But a lot of times, if you just merely jump into something and you say, "I'll try it and I'll do it," and you know, let's see where it goes, you'll be shocked to see how matsliach it is and how matzliach you personally will be. And I think that's a very important insight to take from this parsha, from this pasuk, that Na'ach built a tev for 120 long years. So that other people should listen to a shmooze and do chuba. And guess what? Not a single person did, but Nayak did. And Nayak, because of that, was saved. He and his family, and he started the new world, the World 2.0. And as a result, because he said, I'll do it, I'll build a teva, I'll do my part, and I'll give this drush up for 120 years, repeating the same Musar shmooze over and over again. It affected him. And he changed, and he did Shuba to the degree that he was worthy of beginning the new world. That was my first issue with this Rashi. I have another issue with this Rashi. And that is that, isn't it strange that Taka, there were no buyers in the world for Nayach's Drasha? I mean... You know, you don't have to be the world's greatest speaker or the world's greatest salesman or the world's greatest mashkiach to inspire, to change the mind of one person. You know, I don't know how many people lived in the Dara but let's say it's uh, a million people that lived in the Dara for argument's sake. I don't know. I have no idea. But out of a million people that were passing by as Neich was building this teva, there wasn't a single solitary person that was necessary to do tshuva? Was he that poor a salesman, Nayak? Did he give that bad a drasha that he couldn't convince one guy, not a single person, to do tshuva? Isn't that a strange thing? Was the whole dar that corrupted that they weren't able to do tshuva? You're telling me that every single man, woman, and child were completely... You know, that they were not able to at least be somewhat moved by the by what Nayakh was saying and doing for 120 years. They couldn't be Makabal on themselves to change enough to enter into the teva. That's my second problem with this with this Rashi. And what I wanted to say, and maybe it's a Chiddush, or maybe it's Pashat, but this is what I was thinking. What was the crux of the drusha of Nayach? What was, if, you could, if you would boil it down, what was Nayach basically saying to the people? Why, why were they supposed to do tshuva? They were supposed to do tshuva because if they don't do tshuva, what's going to happen to them? They're going to die. It's basically a musr shmuz about death. You know, every time I, I give a shmuz, we have to give a fancy title to it that'll attract people's attention. So I have to send uh, to Mayor Solomon a, a, a fancy title, and then I have to spend, send it to Shlemin Martyr, who sends it to her anytime. And we have to come up with a gishmaka title so that people will hop what the shmuz is about and make them want to listen. What will be the title of, of Nayaf's Moser Shmooz? The title of Neyach's Moser Shmuz would be Death. That's basically what, what I'm saying. I'm saying you're going to die if you don't listen to me. If you don't listen, if you don't do tshuva, you're basically going to die. It's life or death. And I wanted to... I was thinking that maybe that's why it doesn't say build for yourself a Svina or an Ainea or a different leshinas that we normally use uh, when we're speaking about boats. If you if you look in Sefer Yaina, for instance don't see that that Yaina was on a Teva. Yaina didn't go on a Teva. He was on a, a Nia. He was on a, a ship. A Svina. Different ways of describing the word sh- a ship. something A sea body a vessel. But it ain't a Teva. The only other time you find a Teva is by Meshurabain. Meshurabain, when he was a baby, was put into a little Teva. Same thing. It wasn't a boat. Meshurabain wasn't put into a boat. Not even a Fisher-Price boat. They didn't have those. Basically, they took a shoebox, you know... And they and they put Na'ach. They, they put into a shoebox, and they floated. They made it seaworthy, and they floated it in, in the in the yard. And was basically building a huge box. You know what a huge box looks like? It looks like a coffin. You're gonna say, well, you know, Ishkaiah, a coffin is, uh, you know, six feet long. This was like, uh, you know, who knows how, you know, whatever the, the, that was a much bigger box than a, than a, than a little coffin. Yeah, but guess what, guys? In those days, people were actually giants. They, they, they were very, very tall. I mean, Adam was really tall. He was, he was like, Chazal said that he was, his, his feet were on the ground and his head would bump into the shamayim when he got up. And when he lay down, he was misaifa elame atsefah. one His head was on one end of, of, of the earth and his, his feet were on the other. He was really huge. But after he did a sin, HaKadosh Baruch Hu shrunk him down. But he was, he was considerably, man was still quite large. Neach was basically building a big coffin because that was really the gist of what he was telling people if you don't do tshuva, you're going to die in fact how long was he building this box for for 120 years does that number you know at all conjure up any images of uh of anything when you speak about 120 that's death that's death you know there's a joke that's told that what do you tell a guy, you know, you always say, I may have asked him, you hear like somebody's like 95 years old, oh, can I know her, I may have asked him, right? What do you tell a guy on his 120th birthday? And on his 120th birthday, what do you say? Have a good day. That's it. That's 120, that's it. Once it's uh, you know, no more, I may, you know, no may have asked him, that's it. 120, that's it. And you're going to say, well, you know, that's Mesh You know, you're speaking pre-Mesh right? But if you look at the at the at the pesukim at the end of Parsha Bereshis and Akedat says I'm giving them 120 years. There's a Gemara in Chulim that says min Where is there a remez to Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah? Now you're going to say, well, <laughs> a to Meshra Rabbeinu in the Torah. Hello, 95 percent of the Torah is Moshe Rabbeinu. What do you need a rem? It means in Sefer Barishas. How do you know in Sefer Barishas, where do you see Moshe Rabbeinu? He was such a phenomenal historical. Biblical personality, he should have been mentioned or alluded to somewhere in Seva Bereshit. Bishagam hubasar, that was the end of Parshish bracious Bishagam is gematrium meisha, and then the end of the Pasuk says, v'hayu yamav, of have the amount of years that he's going to live is under years. So meaning that this number of 120 years was not coincidental, it's shayach to meisha abena's lifespan, which is the lifespan that every Yid hopes to Live to, which is 120. That means the number 120 equals mortality. It equals mortality. That we're mortal. In fact, there's a Yerushalmi, if you're still not convinced that what I'm saying is true. There's a Yerushalmi. The Yerushalmi is in Nazir, uh, Parag Zion, on these words, Mehavastim Shana. He says, What do you mean, the of that man lives to 120 years? Men at those days used to live close to a thousand. So, Chazal say, the Rishami says that, Ela echad rekev. You know what happens to the human body after 120 years being in the ground? It decomposes. That all of human, the entire human body with all the bones and all of the muscle and all the, the the Shasagidim become a spoonful of dust. That's what happens after 120 years of decomposition. For people that are not Sadiqim, obviously, you know, people that are Sadiqim, the Vilna Gain, they, they, they reinterred after 100 years after he died and he was, they say he's perfectly intact and his cheeks were rosy red. But for the average person, it decomposes, 120 years is it. That's it. What do we see from this? We see that the Muser Shmuz of the box and the 120 years that Nayak was building, was not Stam 120, it was a Muser Shmuz about you're going to die. Do Tshuva because death is looming, death is imminent if you don't do Tshuva. And Tshuva is a very Misa, rather, is a very powerful tool. It shouldn't be used every single minute. That's depressing. But if you speak about death, Chazal say that death is something that really inspires a person, if anything, to do tshuva. Chazal and Pirkei look at three things: you're not going to come to do an aderan, right? Where you came from, where you're going to, and where you're going to—that you're going to give a din v'chespin sometimes before, eventually, before Akedat baruchu there's a Gemara in Brachas that says that if a person sees his yetsahara overpowering him, one of the things that he should do is remember that he's going to die and that should enable him to somehow triumph over his Yitzhahara. So Misa is a great Muser Shmuz to get people to do Tshuva. There's only one problem when you speak about death and that is that, and this is something that is true if you really, really think about it, that nobody thinks themselves that they're going to die. You can't deny the fact that there is something called death in the world. You pass by, um, you know, cemeteries, and you hear about, you know, you read obituaries, and you see that there are people dying all over. But in terms of a person, the psycho, the psychology or the psyche of man has like a blind spot about death for himself. And we all do that. If you, if you really examine yourself closely, you know, as much as you talk about dying and you think about death once in a while, you don't really think that you're going to die. You think other people are going to die, but you don't think about it yourself. Most people are like that. The Chavitz Chaim used to speak about this. Chavitz Chaim said that people think that there's a, a club of the Gestabener club, which means the people that are going to die, they're in one club and I'm in a different club. I don't belong to that club. There are people that, that, that people will die. I know that people will die, but there are people that. But I'm I'm immune. I'm immune to that. I don't I don't die. I'm not. You know I'm gonna live forever. I'm young. Baruch Hashem. I'm healthy. I'm gonna figure out a way to to do an end run around the Sahar, around the Malacham and I'm gonna survive. I'm gonna live forever. I'm gonna be one of those guys that live forever and ever. I'm gonna be like I'm uh, I'm never gonna die. And even though it's a, a terrible fallacy, obviously, that we're making, but that's the way that we are. And there's a, a, a story that's told about a famous uh, a Magid. And the Magid, the Magid Mavod, like when we think of a Magid, we think of Shalom uh, Shvadron or Yaakov Golinsky or maybe Pesach Kron, al Chaim, people that go and speak and give drushes and inspire people. In the olden days, being a Magid was like a profession, and there was a way of making Parnassus. So if there were people, they were itinerant preachers. They were—that's a a lot of books translate in, in into English. The word Maggid. It, it's a preacher that goes around from city to city, and they uh, inspire people. And if you like their words, you'll put money in their in their pushka and their in their charity plate. And uh, that's how they made a living. They went from town to town, giving very very stirring mussar shmuzin. In the old days, by the way, rabbanim didn't speak every single Shabbos. You're probably wondering, like, wasn't a rabbi? Isn't that the rabbi's job? The rabbi, basically, in many many cities, they spoke Shabbos HaGadol, and they spoke Shabbos Shuva, and that was it. The rest of the year, very rarely did a rabbi get up and speak. It wasn't so necessarily. He might have given shiurim like a lot of the svarim that we have um, of uh, that have. That ha- on the parsha from all from all Gedali Yisrael, they weren't necessarily given from the pulpit. A lot of times, either they wrote it themselves, they gave it. If they were Chassidish rabbis, they gave it at a tish, uh, or they uh, or they gave it as a shear. You know, I think the base Halibi used to give a Friday night shear after the Suda. He used to give a shear to Balabatim. Rev his Chumash Sefer and chumash was also given as a shear. They didn't get up every single Shabbos very often and give a give a drasha. So a magid came to town. And he would give a drasha. You, you came, and if you, you know, you liked what he said, he gave him some money. A maggot comes into a certain town, and he says a shmuz, and the shmuz was on death. It was before Rosh Hashanah Kippur, was speaking about the emadin, and he says to the island there, he says, Rabbi say, everybody in this town is going to die someday everybody's going to be buried someday. And the people were screaming. He was Mamish such a great Magid that there were people screaming and yelling and doing tshuva, crying, and they were going crazy. They were ripping their begodim. They were Mamish like off the charts crazy. But there was one guy in the back of the room and he was just sitting there and he was like without a care in the world. He wasn't moved. This was before, you know, people had ear pods and stuff like that. So he wasn't listening to anything else. He wasn't listening to the ball game or to... He was listening, but he wasn't moved. And this Magid, who took a lot of pride in his ability to really arouse people to do tshuva, he looks at this guy and he's like... "Why?" He's thinking to himself, why is he not you know, doing tshuva? So he screams it a little louder everybody in this town is going to die someday. Everybody, and everybody's screaming except for this one Shmugage in the back of the shul. He's not touched. He's not moved. He's just like sitting like, you know, just like a, a regular smile, a smirk on his face. That any And again, he screams louder and louder. And he, and he basically, he, he's so frustrated, this Magid, that he ends the shmuz like abruptly. He says, you know, uh, everyone's like, oh, Shkayach, and they're coming over, giving him a of throwing money, in his play, but he couldn't care less. He makes a beeline straight for this guy in the back of the shawl, and he grabs him by the lapels, and he says, buddy, he says, I was able to arouse and to inspire and to awaken every single yid, man, woman, and child in the city, except for you. What am I doing wrong? Why are you not being inspired is it my delivery? Is it my content? What, what, what more could I do? Tell me. He says, I'll tell you what it is. He says, you kept saying the whole speech. Every single person in this town is going to die. He says, I'm not from this town. I couldn't relate to what you were saying. I'm from out of town. I'm just here visiting. It's not shy to me. So I wasn't. I just tuned it out. And you know it's a funny story, I guess, but the truth is that it's so real and it's so true because we're we're that guy, we're always that guy. We always think we're from out of town. We're 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 not shy to this mussar moose. Yeah, it's important. It's good. The rabbi is giving you know fire and brimstone about death and Misa and din vecheshbon. But it's not shayach to me. I'm from out of town. I'm not like the chavitz chaim said. I'm not part of that chevra of geshdarbenis. I'm not. Part of that group of people that are going to die, so it's a beautiful that you're giving, but it ain't shayach to me. It's like you know, it's the guy on on either side of me. They should be crying, but not me because it's not nageya to me because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna die. That's how people believe. That's what people really think in the back of their minds. Bahadri al and I'll prove it to you. You know, you ever go to a a, a shiva house le'aleinu. What do people ask when they sit down to be Menachem Avil? What do they ask? The first thing that people ask, and I guess myself included, was he sick? How long was she in the hospital for? Um, you know, what did she have? When did she get it? When, when did he, uh, did he, why are you asking these questions? Does it matter really? Does it matter how long he was in the hospital, she was in the hospital for? Does it matter whether it was a, a quick death or a slow death? You know why you're asking those questions? You know why people ask those questions? Because what you're doing is you're trying to figure out reasons why what happened to that person will not happen to you. So, for example, a person says, Oh, yeah, yeah. oh okay, good. That person, that doesn't run in my family. Heart attack, okay, that guy was, uh, he was obese. I'm not obese, Hashem. it's not shy after me. Um, you know, the person was very old, okay, I'm young, I'm, It's not it's old, young, fine. We're not looking for hecation. we're not looking to make a Hekish between me and the person that died. We're looking for a Hevdal, we're looking for reasons that I'm different. And the reason is because I don't want to accept, I don't want to be macabre on myself and my heart of hearts, that Misa is Shayach to me. It's Shayach to every other person in the world, but it's not Shayach to me. And you know, the Dar I could prove to you, believe this, they didn't see death as something that was shayach to them. How would I prove that to you? Well, if you look at the Rashi at the end of Parashas Berishis in Parak Vav Pasuk Dalid, Rashi writes as follows, Afal pi, she rau shel-dar-enish, there was a generation that overlapped the Dar Mabel. They were called Dar Enish. Dar Enish was a dar that was Avada If you look at the beginning of the Raman Milchas Avayde he gives a whole history lesson about the evolution of Avada Zara in the world, and it all started with Enish and his generation. Aynsham. They were all killed out. Very few people know this Rashi. No one, you know, if you think the first generation that was wiped out was the Dar Amabel There was really a generation called Dar Enish that was that preceded the Dara daramabo they were wiped out shaolo ukainus the oceans rose up the heitzitz schwishai on the drowned a third of the world they died in a in a mabo before the mabo of the, that were that were going to lay in the Shabbos. and yet like Dara daramabo mehem that still did not in any way make an impression on the Dharamab, you'd think the Dharamab would hop, oh, Dar Enish, they were killed. We saw with our own eyes, or we read stories in the paper about how a third of the world was drowned by what they did. Their Ave Zara killed them. You'd think the Dharamab would say, ooh, you know, maybe we should stop ourselves being corrupt, having Hamas and Gezel and Arayas and all that. Well, maybe we should learn a little bit, learn a little Musa from them. They didn't. You know why? Because they had. This assumption that they were different—they were bulletproof, they were made of Teflon. They were everything would slide right off of them. Whatever they do doesn't matter. Akharish Baruch will understand what they did. If there is a God, He will understand. He'll be Meichel me, and I'm not going to die. I'm going to somehow be able to be different than they are. We see that the Dara Mabel suffered from this re- this reality that people don't want to accept death as being something that is Shaykh to them, we see black and white, this was the machla of the dar they saw a different dar, thousands and maybe millions of people that were killed, and it didn't even occur to them that that might be their fate, because they didn't see death as something that was Shaykh to them. And what I wanted to suggest was that perhaps that is the reason why Nayach was getting up every day, building a teva, giving a musr Look at this teva. It's a big coffin I'm building. Why? Because you're going to die someday. If you don't do tshuva in 120 years, which is the lifespan, the mortality of man, if you don't do tshuva, that's it. It's over. Not a single person of the Dara Mabal would say, you know what, that's talk of something to consider. Let's, let's change our attitude. Let's, let's do some chuva here. Let's maybe be safe from the Mabal. Let's uh, hedge our bets at least. And, you know, maybe the guy's not crazy. Maybe he has a point over here. Maybe we're not doing the right thing. Maybe we're going to die like the Dara Enosh. Maybe the 120 years should really inspire me to do something about it. That was what the hope was. But at the end of the day, the only person that was changed was Nayak himself. Like we said earlier. He was inspired to do tshuva. And it was a drasha with an audience of one. This big drasha that he gave for 120 years had an audience of one. Not a single person in the world were able to listen and to hear because the topic of the shmuz was death. And when you hear death, you tune out. You tune it out. Maybe if his shmooze would have been about uh, you know something more interesting, something more relatable, something more uh, you know inspirable, maybe it was to give tzedakah better or to so, you know to not go to this place and not to. Maybe they would have listened. But death, death is something that's that's, that's a good rush to give everybody else. It's not shaykh to me. Not me. For everybody else, not for me. So I could pass by your big coffin for 120 years. I could hear you giving rousing mustard rushes. Oh, you're still talking about death? Sorry, that, that, that's not for me. And it's a very difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing to really think about death and, and allow it to inspire you because you don't want to think about that. Death is such a frightening prospect that we want to avoid the topic at all costs. We want to not think about it. And by the way, we shouldn't be thinking about it every minute of the day because we have to live and we have to live healthy and normal. We can't be paranoid and we can't be neurotic and we have to enjoy life. We have to... You know, we have to smile, we have to sing, we have to dance, we have to be positive, and we have to be good husbands and good fathers and good chavruses and good, good talmidim and good sons. and good. We have, to, we have to live normally. We can't think doom and gloom day and night. But at the other, on the other hand, it's very important to, at the same time, have in the back of your mind that there is a yaym ha and it will come someday, inevitably, no matter how old or young I am, no matter how sick or healthy I am, no matter what demographic I'm part of, no matter what gene pool I have, death is a reality. It's a reality. It's a reality and we have to face that reality, not live with it in a, in a way that makes us depressed, but get it into our, into our skulls that, that it will happen and that we will have to answer someday for our actions And as difficult as it is, because our, like we said, our psyche doesn't really accept that as the reality for us personally, we have to be able to figure out a way to make it more realistic to ourselves. In fact, uh, Reb Chaim Kanievsky, when he was asked, you know, what muss is safer to learn with young children, you know what he said? He said, learn rashi's Chachma. Now, I would say, learn Mesol Sisharim, learn Acha and learn, I don't know, something, you know, light and, you know, and, and sort of, uh, you know, if you're going to learn muster with your kids, which is a nice thing to do, but I don't know how many of us do it, but learn something like, you know, that, that's more light and fluffy, warm and fuzzy. You know what Reish's Chachma is? Reish's Chachma is a safer that was written a few hundred years ago and it's basically a safer that gives a graphic depiction of Gehenim. If you ever wondered what gehenom looks like, he will describe it to you with all of the all of the the nuances which is quite frightening. Every little thing about Gehenim that you ever wanted to know, you'll find it in Savages' Chachmah. And Reb Chaim, he have said that's what you should learn with your kids. Said, Are you crazy? Learn, learn Reish's Chacham with my kids. What, do I want more therapy for them? Like, what, what, you know, how, what, what, why would that be annoying? He says, that's what my father taught me, and that's what I teach my children, and it's very important from a young age that a child should understand that there is a there is some day going to be a yaima Mavis, and that there's a Dayan, and that there's a Din, and that there's a, an Einish, and if we're able to use death as a tool to do tshuva and to live the right way, then it's a tremendous tool. If we just use it to freak ourselves out, that's not what we're talking about here. But if we recognize that there will be a day of reckoning, that is very powerful. That's a very powerful thing. If you look in a great book called Great Jewish Letters, you'll find a letter from Reb Kiva Eger. And it's basically a letter that he wrote to himself. Sometimes you write letters to other people, but sometimes you'll write a letter to yourself. Why would you write a letter to yourself? Why can't I just talk to myself? Because when you write a letter to yourself, it, it reminds you of things, that it inspires you. So Rabbi wrote a beautiful letter. It's called Igeris Hais Iris. It's the letter of awakening. And it's a letter... That it's, I think it's the, in the Hebrew, it's Aleph Bez. And I translated it. And I won't read it to you because it's a little long and it's a little graphic. But basically, thank you, Mendy, But um, it's basically Rabbi writing in graphic detail what happens to a person after he dies. Ribchhatskal wrote about this letter, about the Sigaris Cesiris, that Ribki Eger... What do we know when you think of Ribki Eger, What do you think of? Genius. Pure genius. right? There's no guy that was greater than Ribki Vegar. And it's and even and since then there's never been somebody that that in any way parallels, touches the guyness of Ribki Eger. And yet, with all of his genius, he has to write himself a letter reminding him of the fact that there's going to be a day of death and that all the details, how you're going to be, you know, put in a box and they're going to lower you and your family's going to leave and they're going to go home and eat and they're going to forget about you and bugs are going to, you know, the, the, the maggots are going to eat your flesh. Rebekah Beger needed to write this? Yes, because even the great genius that Rebekah Baker was his mind did not permit itself so easily to accept the reality, so he had to write himself this letter. It wasn't just the Dara Mabel that was, that was tone-deaf as far as, as far as death is concerned. It wasn't the Dara Flaga. It wasn't just the generations that we're living in. Rubki Vegar. The great Reb Kibeger, the tzaddik, the kaddish, the tarib Kiviger, the Gain Hadar Hadares Reb Kibeger, he needed to remind himself because other, if you don't remind yourself, then you forget, and you think that you're going to live forever and ever and ever, and and you won't do tshuva. Reb Gifter bought himself a plot on Harazesim to be buried. And he did that, B'davka, so that it would inspire him. When people asked him, how do you remember the Gemara so well? How do you know every Tysis and shah so well? He says, easy. He said, why, you're a genius? I'm not a genius. He says, I bought a plot in Harazesim, and I, it reminds me that I'm not going to be alive forever, and I better get this Gemara into my head, because I need it for lin Otherwise, you think, I don't have to learn Chazar because, you know, I'll catch you the next time around. You know, in 150 years from now, I'll probably learn it again. And I'll, 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 that's when I'll learn it. But if you understand that life is finite, and it's not infinite then that will inspire you to change. But you need to do things practically because otherwise you'll be like the Dara Mabal. You're going to be just seeing, listening to the Musr about death, seeing it graphically with your own eyes, this big coffin being built. It's not going to make an impression on you whatsoever. It's so interesting. You know, there's a restaurant. It changed. It used to be one restaurant, then it, it went out of business. It sold to another restaurant um, on Main Street. And... It's an interesting location that it shows. To, uh, that it shows. It was. It's basically right across the street from a cemetery. You know, there's like a big cemetery down Main Street, and you look out the window of this restaurant, and you see Mamish. It's not even. It's a Jewish cemetery. I have relatives that are buried in that cemetery. I've been to to, to funerals in that cemetery, as as did many people in Queens. But yet, you're able to sit down. And eat like a a burger and and, and fries and uh, enchiladas and wraps and, you know, all these things. And while you're looking out the window at a cemetery, is that normal? That a person's able to, what's the, the answer is that I look at the cemetery, but it's not shaykh to me. Unless you really put it through your brain that it is shaykh to you, you will think that it's not shaykh. It's an amazing thing, but it's a very important lesson that we're teaching here. Have, as you, again, not to depress anybody, not to freak anybody out or cause, but as a certain reality, you have to face the fact that there is that life is limited. And when you face that reality, then you could do tshuva. And if you don't, then all, you'll be you'll be like the daramabel. You're gonna live and live and live and not chap that you have to do tshuva because in your heart of hearts you'll believe that you still always have time. The Chavitz Chaim used to say that life is like a postcard. What does that mean? Life is like a postcard. What you notice about writing a postcard? Now, no one today writes postcards anymore, practically. But in the olden days, it was uh, it was popular when you went on a, on a vacation. If you went down to Florida or something, um, you would uh, you would uh, you would write a postcard. You know, you'd go into the gift shop in the hotel and you would buy a. Uh, you know, a postcard with a picture of Miami or a picture of Eretz Yisrael or whatever it is, and you'd send home a, a, a postcard like that to your to your family, to your friends. Now what happened was that you would start writing on this postcard, you had a, lim- a limited space, it's basically the size of like an index card, and you'd start writing on the top of the postcard in large letters, you know, dear uh you know, dear daddy and mommy, I'm having a great time here. And you're writing in like, you know, like let's say a size fifteen font, you know, with your handwriting. And then as you're writing, you realize that there's so much more that you wanted to uh include in the postcard, but there's not so much room left. So as you're getting closer to the bottom of the postcard and you're running out of space, what do you do? It goes from a size 15 font to a 12 font and then to a 10 font. And then by the bottom, you're already at like a 3 font. And then you're looping it around the address and around the back of the card and whatever. That's how postcards looked. So the Chavitz made the analogy. He always saw things in light of Musr. So he'd see this postcard. Most of us said, oh, that's interesting. He wrote it on a postcard and it gets smaller. The Chavitz Chaim didn't see it that way. The Chavitz said, this is life. Life is like a postcard. You start out when you're young and you think that you have all the time in the world and you have time to kill and, you know, I could do whatever I want. I could watch movies and I could read papers and read books and do this and do that. And, you know, because I got plenty of time. And later, you know, once you get too old and you now realize maybe that, you know, maybe things are not as, I don't have as much time as I thought. Then you start, you know, hopping around. Then you start giving a lot of tzedakah, and you start, you know, starting to do dafiyim. You wanna, you wanna do all. Your, but by then, it's too late. You don't have enough room. You're, you're trying to squeeze everything in in of the postcard that's your life. But you're not gonna have room. You gotta plan ahead. You gotta understand that from an early age, had to plot out your life because it's not forever. There was a very big gevir by the name of Rothschild. Rothschild is like the iconic Gevier in Klal Yisrael, before uh, you know, other people came along that were also very wealthy, but Rothschild was always like the Spitz Gevier. And some of the Rothschild, a lot of them went off the derich, um, but the early generations of Rothschild, some of them were very from. And there was one of them that used to, every day, go into a, uh, a little shed on his property, at a very big property, I believe he lived in Frankfurt, Germany, and he basically went into a shed every day, like by lunchtime. And nobody knew where he went. And one time, somebody followed him. He said, Where are you going? I said, No, no, go, go back home. I just said, no, no, let me come with you. He says, I don't think you want to come with me. He says, No, I want to come with you. What do you doing in that shed every single day? Anyway, in that shed, there was dirt, and it, there was like a, a grave in that shed with a coffin. An open coffin, and every single day the great rough child would go and climb into that coffin and lie there for about five ten minutes. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to remind himself that this world is temporary today he's a billionaire and he has carriages and he has properties, and he's got billions of dollars, and he's got power and glory, and everyone's you know bending over backwards for him. But he wanted to remind himself in a real concrete way that it's not forever. It's not forever and we have to remind ourselves of that because if you do that, then you can really make a great life for yourself. But You have to dangle that carrot of death is a tremendous energizer in life. If you're able to appreciate that your life is not forever, now you're going to... Be galvanized to do great things with your life because you realize that I don't have forever. I don't have time to waste. I gotta learn. I gotta chazor, I gotta steig, I gotta write. I gotta. I gotta live. I gotta make. You know, do tzedakah. Do chesed. Start an organization. You know, be nice to people. All these things are things that death will will energize you for. It will fuel your life. Ironically, there's nothing greater than to think about death if you do it in the right way that will make you aware of your responsibilities in life. And this is what Psukim and Kahela speak about the Pasuk says it's lechas it's better to go to a, an Oval house than to go to a party. You have a choice between going to a, to a funeral or going to a chasna, which is better? Well, the food is probably better at the chasna. There's more sushi at the chasna, but there is a greater import in going to the base Oval and to going, to going to a funeral or to go to a, a house of mourning why? Because it will, it will remind you that life is only temporary and I have a lot to accomplish in this life. And if we don't think that we have a lot to accomplish, we'll spend our whole day and night watching video games and listening to debates and going to, you know, and watching movies and YouTube from one to another and just constantly, and we all do this because, you know, we think that we have, we're, we're immune from death and that we have plenty of time. But the people that are really great in Klai Yisrael, they constantly remind themselves, whether it's Shabki Kiveger, whether it's Chavitz Chaim, whether it's Rebel Yashev, Rebbe Steinemann, Yibad Khaim, Chaim, Rebbe Chaim Kanievsky, they remember that there's Yim HaMavis, and every day they do more and more to build up their capital in this world because they realize it's not forever. There's a, a beautiful Medrash, in Medrash Tillam, in Parak Chaf, on the Pasuk of Yan HaShem B'yayim Tzara, and the Medrash says that a person should, um, that there was a father and a son, and the father and the son uh, were going to, um, they were walking on the road together, they were walking on the road together, and the son asks the father, are we there yet? That's the age-old question when you're going on a road trip, right, with your family, and the kids are always asking, are we almost there yet? Are we there yet? When how much longer? What's the ETA? So the father said to the son, This is a cloud that you should take with you, he says to the son. When you see the cemetery, you know that we're near the city. The city is near when you see the cemetery. The cemetery was always on the outskirts of the city. As soon as you see the cemetery, then you know that the city is about to will be almost home, and the measure says that that's what life is. Yanhach Hashem biemtsarah. He says when you see tsaros, which is the equivalent of a cemetery, then you should know that the guula is krevo The home you're almost home when you're able to have the tsar. When you're able to see death, that's when you're closest to life, because that's the way it is. The people that are really living are the people that are cognizant of death. The people that are squeezing out life for for everything that it has to offer are the people that know that it's not forever. Even the uh, I don't know where it comes from, but I think it's an old uh, maybe a Roman x Right, eat eat. Uh, no, it's a, it's a I think it's a pasuk. But the, even gayim eat. Uh, Eat and be eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we will die that's that was like borrowed from 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 that buzz like obviously that wasn't the point, but that's that became the Sachaim of many people i I'm not going to live, even the people that hop they're not going to live forever. they use it the opposite way. Let me enjoy life, let me hop in this world, but that's not the way a Yid looks at it. A Yid looks at it. I'm not going to live here forever, so let me. Be greater in tyra and mitzvahs. Let me do things of of importance, of meaning. Let me fill up my life with meaning and do the right thing because because the death is uh, is is around. And we're living in very very uh, strange times, interesting times, and there are so many Musr uh, shmos that we could take from the reality of, of corona, the most important thing to, to do about it is to listen to the doctor's orders. That's the first, le- the first order of business is to wear masks and to socially distance and to try to really, you know, follow all that the medical doctors are telling us because uh, that's the hashkafah That's what the tire wants. I don't know in the world, the, for the life of me, I don't understand, you know, what happened to to Klael Yisrael in the last... Six months, but we are doing everything the opposite of what we 're supposed to be doing i don 't get it i really don 't have spoken to people much greater than I, and they also don 't get it um, but it 's not that we don 't believe in science we don 't believe in medicine or doctors. There are halachas about Yema Kippur, that you're supposed to listen to a doctor about, you know, how, how well a person is and whether they should fast or they shouldn't fast, or they should eat shi- shiurim and all of that. We we believe in doctors, and Rachman and if a person needs an oncologist or a person needs an endocrinologist or a person needs a, a you know, a kidney specialist or whatever, they go to the best hospitals, Karedim, Chasidim, Litvish. They find... You know we have medical referral services, and we we basically believe that that then we do believe in medicine, but for some reason now, and it's a tremendous chil Hashem, and that's not really the point here, but so the first takeaway from Corona is that we have to follow doctor's orders, and that's that's our mitzvah right now. We, if it means that we don't have Chilobot Sibor, so be it. If we don't have Kriya Satera, so be it. If we don't have a, you know, Yeshiva, so be it. We have to do what the doctors are saying to do because they're saving our lives. And I don't believe that mayors are necessarily Risham and governors are necessarily Risham. They might be, but that's a separate discussion. But the fact of the matter is that if they're following what they're medical professionals are telling them and the, and the numbers are, are basically corroborating what they're saying, then it behooves us to listen to them and not be foolish and not look foolish to the world and, 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 and go against them because they're actually saving our lives. That's the first thing to take away from Corona right now, Lomaisa. But another very important takeaway is that Lomaisa, people are dying, there's over 220,000 Americans that have died. It's a lot of people. The whole 9/11, which you know every American had bumper stickers and flags and never again, and you know we, we won't forget. America, you know, was a few thousand people. This is 220,000 people. It's a real magaifa. And around the world, millions of people are die, have died, are dying. In Eretz Yisrael, things are not good at all. Very, very bad in Eretz Yisrael. What's going on? We have G'daylam that we lost from Corona. We have uh, Tzadikim. We have rabbanim. We have T'mid We have Balabatim, Chashuvim. And women, Chashvah women, and, and younger people and older people. The reality is that people around us are dying. That's just the reality. You can't get around it. Now, Think to yourself, do you believe that you're part of that group? No. You don't think that, that's for him and he, he wasn't wearing a mask and she was compromised and he was old and he was young, he had a heart condition. That's the, that's the balabatisha way of, of looking at it and, and it's the human way of looking at it, quite frankly. But a great takeaway of corona is that we have to begin to realize that we're mortal. If corona does nothing else for us than to remind us that we're mortals and that death, ki Allah mabas as the Pasuk says, that death has come through the window, quite literally. There's very few families that have not been touched in one way or another, either through the sickness of corona or by people, Rehman al dying from corona. If you don't get that and you don't use that as a tool to realize your own personal mortality then you miss the boat pardon the pun you miss the boat you have to be able to use corona as knocking it into our thick heads that death is a reality of life if 200,000 of our fellow citizens are no longer they're buried because of corona that means that It's real. If thousands of Jews in in, in the tri-state area have died over the last six months, that means that it's real. And even though we're unfazed by it almost, but that's a terrible mistake. We have to use it to realize that we have to do tshuva, and we have to better our lives, utilize every precious moment that we can to the fullest, enjoy life, not be depressed, Enjoy life. Have a good time. Kosher ways of having a good time. Spend nice time with your family and with your friends and, and enjoy. Not enjoy. But at the same time, daven well and learn well and be a mensch and, and, and make a kiddush Hashem wherever you go because you realize that the, the clock is ticking. We don't have forever. And don't believe for a second that you're that guy from out of town. And I'm talking to each and every one of you. And if nobody in this shmooze listens to me, except for me, it was kedai to give the shmooze as well. Because I don't get it either. I'll be very honest, with you. I'm, I'm part of that club that doesn't believe they're going to die either. But I'm trying, and the more that I'm talking, I hope that it's having an impression on you, and I hope that it's having an impression on me, because it's reality. And so, if we realize that life is temporary, then that's when life actually begins. There's a medrash that says, mm-hmm. At the end of Shesh and Ebreish, Hashem saw everything that he did and was very, very good. And there's a medrash that says, What does that mean? Really good is death? Death is really good. Who thinks, by a show of hands, who thinks death is really good? What does Chazal mean? What it means is that if you understand death, if you recognize that there's death, then your life becomes extraordinary. The people that are able to live extraordinary lives are the people, like the great people that we discussed today, whether it's Reb Kiv Eger, whether it's Nayak, whether it's, whether it's uh, the Chavitz Hayim, whether it's Rothschild. You know what the common denominator of all of them are? They were extraordinary people. They were extraordinary, each in their own way, but they were extraordinary because they realized that they have so much to accomplish in life and they don't have time to waste. And mitzvah Hashem, if we're able to hop this early on in life, not wait like on the postcard till you're at the bitter end and then start like really, you know, scrambling to get everything done. But you realize at an early age, I have a lot to accomplish. I have so much to do and I can't squander a moment then each and every one of you will really, truly be the greatest people that you could be. In Amitza Hashem, we should all be to have a wonderful, wonderful Shabbos, a wonderful life. And Amid Hashem, we should use the concept of death to inspire us to live life to its fullest.